Hello, hello, friends, and today, now that I finally have my audio figured the fuck out, we're going to talk about the Amber Alert system. I originally was going to do Richard Speck, and while that still is on my radar, I wanted to do something that was still unsolved. I seem to kind of have a um, pattern on what I like, and unsolved murders definitely are a little more interesting. Also, this is wildly historic. So grab your butts, grab your vice, and let's chat some crime. Today we're going to go to Arlington, Texas, and we're going to go back in time to 1996. January 13th, nine-year-old Amber Hagerman was on a bike ride with her little brother Ricky, who is five years old. They decided to go two blocks down to the Winn-Dixie store near their house and play on a bike ramp because the store was abandoned. Pretty soon into their trip, Ricky became pretty nervous and say pretty once more and I'll stab you. After Amber and Ricky had spent their time playing in the parking lot, Ricky decided it was time to go home. Amber wanted to stay in place some more, so she did, and Ricky went home. Between the minutes of Ricky arriving back to his grandparents' house, his mother instructing him to go back out and return with Amber, and him coming home empty-handed, that's all the time it took for Amber's kidnapper to get her. This is one of the most well-known and simultaneously least known child abductions, and it only happened sans 20 years ago. Amber Hagerman inspired the Amber Alert system that we know today. Amber's body would be found two days later, face down in a creek, nude with one sock on. Throughout this episode, we're going to go through the details of that case, or the details that are known, and try and devise maybe a theory. All right, let's take a break, and when we return, we'll get into the details of the disappearance and murder of nine-year-old Amber Hagerman. All right, friends, today's murder takes place in Arlington, Texas in 1996, and our victim is Amber Hagerman. She is the entire reason why we have an Amber Alert system. Amber was born to Donna Williams, and her mom describes her as your typical all-American girl, which... I know it's cliche, but it, it does kind of fit. Amber was in the brownies, which Amber's mother, Donna Williams, describes her as vivacious, loved to ride the bike, loved to ride outdoor activities, and lived for playing with her friends. Her younger brother, Ricky, viewed her as almost a second mom. Ricky and Amber were only four years apart in age, so they essentially went everywhere together. The morning of January 13th, Ricky and Amber were visiting their grandparents, and their mother and father were with them. They begged to go just one block over, and they wanted to go on a bike ride. They finally relented and said yes, and this was a pretty normal occasion, just to take the bike down to the park or around the block, whatever you did before the internet. And Amber, on the way there, decided that she wanted to go just one block farther, so literally just two blocks, down to the abandoned Winn-Dixie, which a lot of the local kids used for bike ramps. Actually, I uh, had one of these in my hometown. Uh, it was behind the local post office, and me and my sister would ride down on our bikes, and we'd bring rollerblades in our backpack and rollerblade on the um, like rails and ramps down there. Well, after a couple minutes of this bike riding, Ricky decided that he had had enough. He was a little nervous that they were gone farther than they should have been, so he let Amber to play a little bit longer, and he just rode home. When Ricky got to his house, he told his mother that Amber had stayed behind, and of course, Donna was like, absolutely not, go back and get her. 
But by the time Ricky had returned, there was no Amber. There was only her bike laying there with no Amber around. Ricky obviously knew something was wrong, so he sped home on his bike as fast as he could and immediately told his grandparents. It's important to know that Ricky was also only five, so he was probably really confused by the whole situation and knew something was wrong but didn't really know what yet. The kid's grandfather, Jimmy, immediately jumped in his car and drove right to the Winn-Dixie when he found out that Amber wasn't there. But when they arrived on the scene, they were immediately confused. There was already a police car there and a couple of people standing around as if something had happened. But Ricky was just there, so... What? Although five-year-old Ricky didn't know it at the time, Grandfather Jimmy certainly knew that this was absolutely the worst thing you could possibly see. Amber's grandfather walked up to the policemen and they explained that they had just received a call from an elderly gentleman who lived across the street from the same Winn-Dixie that Ricky and Amber were playing at. The gentleman was named Jim Kettle and he informed the police that he was in his backyard when he saw a younger man forcing Amber into a large black truck. The neighbor heard Amber scream, saw her kick, and saw the van speed off and said, and I quote, I thought the police ought to know. I heard a lot of people kind of tearing this apart, but 1996, we didn't have the things that we have now. There wasn't an internet in her back pocket. There barely was 911. There certainly, we now know, was not Amber Alert. So the word of a missing child getting out was something as simple as asking the neighbors where your kids were. Even though Arlington in 1996 was a relatively largely populated area, like 300,000-ish, this particular area was not. It was definitely like a smaller section, a neighborhood where you knew a decent amount of people. And the idea that somebody would snatch a young child right out of midair is just so bizarre, even now. The suspect was described as white or possibly Hispanic, anywhere from like 25 to 40, under six foot, medium build, which is the most average description ever. In the defense of the older gentleman who did see this, it happened within a few seconds, so I wouldn't have been able to get a really good look either. Here's his quote. I saw Amber riding up and down. She was by herself. I saw this black pickup. He pulled up, jumped out, and grabbed her. When she screamed, I figured the police ought to know about it, so I called them. And in between Mr. Kevill calling the police and them arriving to the Winn-Dixie, that's kind of in that time frame that Ricky was either heading back with his grandfather, Jimmy, or he was heading back to tell them that he didn't find Amber the second time. Either way, eight minutes is all it took. There's a picture of her bike in the parking lot of this Winn-Dixie and an officer bending down, and it looks like the most eerie photo. For some reason, it just got to me. They sent out kind of like a town-wide bulletin with Amber's description, which was missing stranger abduction. Amber Hagerman, nine, female, four foot seven, 75 pounds, reddish brown hair with blue eyes. Circumstances, Amber was last seen Saturday, January 13th at 3.15 p.m. being forced into a black short bed pickup truck in the old Winn-Dixie parking lot on Abram Street in Arlington, Texas. A witness said a white or Hispanic man had kidnapped her. 
please call Arlington Police Department at... So that was essentially a flyer that the town sent around. And for the next four days, police and volunteers searched for Amber. A large-scale search was also conducted by FBI personnel, and Amber's parents held out hope that she was still alive. However, four days later, Amber's body would be found. Unfortunately, Amber was found by a man walking his dog behind the Forest Hills Apartments, which was a complex less than five miles from the abandoned Winn-Dixie where Amber was last seen. There's no way to sugarcoat this next part, so I'm just going to put a trigger warning on it. As if there's not a trigger warning on this entire podcast, but trigger warning. Amber had been found face down in a creek, fully nude with one sock on. There had been a really big storm the last four days in Arlington, so her body wasn't necessarily waterlogged, but it was covered in mud and leaves, and it was definitely destroyed of any evidence that was on there. The autopsy revealed that Amber had been held for two days captive, had been beaten, raped, sexually assaulted, and then finally had her throat slashed. As far as DNA goes, in 2011, the Dallas Morning News reported that, and I quote, Arlington police detectives, as late as Wednesday, would still not disclose whether DNA evidence exists in the case or any other type of evidence for that matter. Unquote. Obviously, when the town heard of her body being found so close and so quickly, it was devastating. The tremendous amounts of water had washed away any evidence they had hoped to collect, because at the time, really 96, DNA was infantile and fingerprint and hair, fiber evidence, that's what they went on, and there was none of that. In terms of tips and updates, for years the police got tips and... They seem to kind of hone in on a description of the man, however, there's still no suspects. The main theory in this case is that Amber was actually abducted by a stranger, which is a lot more rare than you'd think. For a man to abduct a child in a plain sight in the middle of the day is incredibly risky. In an article from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram written by Stephen Mishod in 96, Mr. Ruben Rodriguez from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Virginia was quoted on saying, Whoever abducted and killed nine-year-old Amber Hagerman in Arlington probably lives in the area and established some sort of previous connection with her. This guy's probably already come to the attention of police. I bet they have his name and investigative files somewhere. This is not a high-functioning pedophile. He could be inexperienced, possibly crazy, or in a mental break. I won't use the actual word they printed in 96, but the R word was still A-okay. A guy who takes a girl forcibly like that, taking risks of being seen instead of quietly luring a child from a playground, for example, probably can't communicate with other people and he's acting desperate, wanting to act out his fantasies. Okay, that's from the article written in 96. There's a couple more theories as to the actual MO of a kidnapper and rapist like this, and I kind of disagree. I don't think that just because somebody does something shocking during the daylight means that they can't communicate. And with that little bit of horrible information, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about some theories. Okay, and we're back. Where we left off, the police were receiving a lot of tips about Amber's case, however, not really that many that panned out. 
A theory about why this is is because Arlington, Texas was close to the border and maybe the people who saw something were illegal and didn't feel comfortable going to the police for that reason. That would make sense. And if it was in the middle of the day and at least one neighbor heard her and saw her scream, someone else must have had to see something, right? I don't know about you guys, but my brain immediately went to The Lovely Bones, which I read when I was like 13. If you haven't read it or seen the movie, it's about a girl who gets abducted by a local like pedophile serial killer and he essentially takes her in the basement and keeps her. And my brain just went right to this. I don't know anything about the police investigation. I couldn't find any files. I spent hours trying to look for any kind of evidence log or search log or anything and couldn't find it. I have so many questions off the bat, but my first one is, where did they search and how did they search it? I want to know, like, did they actually take, um, there are poles with spikes in them, you can kind of like stab the ground. How far did they go? Did they actually search the entire perimeter? And if they did, did they find anything? Also, what was Amber wearing the last time she was seen? I can't find that anywhere. And the fact that these descriptions of her were so vague really prompted her mother, Donna, to take action. Donna was hounding the police, maybe not hounding, but was certainly pushing for stricter laws governing predators and sex offenders. And while this was happening, the whole town of Arlington was tuning into their radios and waiting with bated breath. The day that the radios announced that Amber's body was found, which would have been the 17th just four days later, a listener had an idea. A woman by the name of Diana Simone, who lived in Fort Worth and was also a mother, contacted the local radio station, and she was wondering why broadcasters would send out those severe alert warnings, but they couldn't send out a missing child warning. She questioned whether the community had known Amber had been abducted or was aware of the suspect, anything, a vehicle description, what she was wearing. Could Amber have been located before she was killed? Could Amber's perpetrator have been caught? The idea completely snowballed, and at Diana's request, it became known as the Amber Alert Program. Amber Alert stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. Other states sometimes have words for it involving a different missing persons case, but it is, at least in the US and Canada, usually referred to as an Amber Alert. Let's talk a little bit about how the Amber Alert system works. Once law enforcement determines if a case meets the criteria, then the authorities notify broadcasters and the state transportation agencies. Each state kind of can determine what their own criteria for Amber Alerts mean, but an act passed in 2003 granted the following minimum standards for issuing Amber Alerts. There's reasonable belief by law enforcement that an abduction has occurred. The law enforcement agency believes a child is in imminent danger of serious bodily injury or death. There is enough descriptive information about the victim and the abduction for law enforcement to issue the alert and assist in the recovery of the child. The abduction of the child is aged 17 years or younger. 
the child's name and other criteria data elements, including the child's abduction flag, have been entered into the NICIC system, which is the National Crime Information Center. Amber Alerts can interrupt regular programming, um, like radio, TV, highway signs, like those little flashers you see. I've seen those a lot. Um, they can also, I realize, be um, distributed through the lottery, which is kind of interesting. Um, digital billboards and all those like internet ads you see on the side of like um, search bars and shit. I actually read once that they distributed suspect cards um, to prisoners in jail. And what I mean is like places would print um, like suspects information and photo on the back of playing cards and distribute them throughout prisons. And it's actually solved a couple of cases. So there's that. As of 2017, the Amber Alert system has actually successfully rescued 897 children. And those are alive children. Even if the Amber Alert couldn't have recovered Amber, because unfortunately when pedophiles usually pick up children into a secondary location, they are not going to survive that secondary location, maybe they could have found a shoe, a tire tread, a, a another witness, something leading them to where this man was, where he was living, and why he did what he did. There are also several other cases tied to Amber's case th that are eerily similar, and although no suspects have been caught, there are a couple of other child murders that have similar MOs. Unfortunately, given the evidence and the fact that even milk carton kids... <coughs> were around like the 80s and 90s it seems literally like a hundred years ago in my brain that you couldn't alert somebody of a missing child but it was only 24 years ago i'm 28. there were a lot of similarities to the amber hagerman case and my childhood and it kind of opened my eyes to how easy it was back then to abduct and take a child and how commonplace it was. In 1996, I would have been four years old, so Amber was definitely older than me, but my sister and I used to ride our bikes, like I said, down to the post office. We'd bring our roller skates and we'd ride around town, you know, go to the grocery store, get a candy bar, walk around, doing things you did. As I've said before, my mother would absolutely let us go by ourselves, and more often than not, I'd say about 75% of the time, my sister would become annoyed with me and leave me, and I would just ride home alone. She rarely got in trouble for it because it was a typical thing. Not to mention, I also looked like Amber Hagerman. I had those straight-across bangs, dark red-brown hair, I mean brown eyes, but freckles. Nonetheless, we know a lot now than we did know in 1996 about MOs and profiles. I obviously don't know diddly squat, and I'm just going off of my own opinion, but if somebody is rash enough to grab a child and dump her body in the exact same town only four days later, at least two of those days having kept her, I don't think this person could have done this and had it been their first victim. The idea that she was taken and dumped in the exact same town suggests to me that maybe this person isn't from here and they don't give a shit about where they dump the child because 
they know that they're not going to be connected to the place. Or it could be something as simple as he just doesn't care whether he gets caught or not, and just never got caught. Through my combing on the internet, I did find a really good write-up on Reddit by user Definition of Akuda about an incident that happened in Dixon, Texas, or sorry, Dickinson, Texas, on August 20th, 1990. It happened to an eight-year-old girl named Jennifer Shewitt, and she was abducted by a man from her bedroom via the window in the middle of the night. She left her, um, like, lamplight on, and that's how he knew she was there. Jennifer was driven to a remote area, strangled until she was unconscious, and then raped in the man's car. He slit her throat, sounds familiar, and left her for dead in a field. Somehow she woke up like 14 hours later, covered in fire ants, but she couldn't yell because her throat box had been slashed. Thankfully, there were other kids who played in that area, and they unfortunately did find her, but thankfully she was still alive. In the weeks Jennifer spent recovering, she wrote down every single thing she could remember about her attacker because she couldn't speak. There's a lot of similarities, unfortunately a lot of dissimilarities as well, but I feel like it's important to mention. Jennifer described the man who took her and his car as a two-door bluish yucky color and it was a truck. That could mean dark blue or gray or black. Additionally, the girls looked shockingly similar. They both had that kind of dark red-brown hair, freckles around the same age. However, Jennifer's attacker was actually caught in 2009 by DNA evidence. The piece of shit hung himself, but the fact that he showed remorse probably shows that he's not Amber's killer. Then there's the case of Morgan Nick. Morgan Nick disappeared around 10.30 p.m. the evening of Friday, June 9th, 1995 from a baseball game she was attending with her mother. Morgan's never been found, and her mother to this day is still in belief that she'll be found alive. The circumstances of Morgan's disappearance are eerily similar to that of Amber and possibly of Jennifer's abduction. Colleen and Morgan had had a mom-daughter date and had spent the evening at a baseball game watching their brother. Morgan had asked to go catch fireflies with the other kids, and at first Colleen was reluctant, but eventually gave in. The kids were playing just in the view of Colleen, and Morgan was wearing a bright green t-shirt and was also a Girl Scout. Colleen suddenly saw two of Morgan's friends run up to her, and they realized Morgan wasn't with them. When Colleen asked the girls where Morgan was, the girls said that a quote-unquote creepy man approached them, and while they were taking sand out of their shoes, he was trying to talk to Morgan. The man took Morgan, and the only thing we know was that he was in a faded red Ford pickup truck, and it had one of those white camper shells in the back of it. While the police were called and arrived within the six minutes and did the huge search like they did in the Amber Hagerman case, nothing was ever found. They did get eyewitnesses. He was described as a Caucasian male, roughly between 23 and 40 years old, spoke with an obnoxious quote-unquote hillbilly accent, had a medium build, and was roughly six foot tall. The description for Morgan's abductor does say that the attacker had salt and pepper hair and noticed that the back of the camper shell was like a little too short for the bed of the truck and the bed also had damage on the passenger side. 
And even though Morgan Nick was in Ozark, Arkansas, that's only five miles away from Arlington, Texas, where the Hagerman case took place. Compounding all of this, that exact same day, a four-year-old was pulled into a truck outside of a laundromat in Alma, but fortunately the mother was able to retrieve her. And on June 10th, a nine-year-old was forced into the men's restroom at a convenience store in Fort Smith, only 10 miles away. She was able to escape as well. In both cases, the abductor and his vehicle were similar to Morgan's. Now, I know a red pickup is a lot different than a blue pickup or a black pickup, but spray paint is cheap. It's really easy to disguise a car. Regarding Amber's body, where it was found... It was found in the creek approximately, like, four miles from that abandoned parking lot, and while the autopsy suggests that she was held for about two days before she was ultimately murdered, the authorities think that the creek actually washed her body down farther because there was also a thunderstorm happening kind of in that time frame, and that might explain why there was nothing kind of reported behind the creek, no suspicious activities, the apartments that she was found near were doing maintenance, so if somebody was back there dumping a child, the likelihood of them being caught is greatly increased. So, the killer was obviously familiar enough with the area, whether it be a hotel or a home, to keep a child for two days assaulting her. Me personally, my opinion that nobody asked for, well... <laughs> I think whomever took Amber Hagerman was from the area or from a larger pinpoint near the area, i.e. traveled across states often and definitely was not afraid to get caught. The idea that she was taken in broad daylight and literally snatched makes it almost always point to a stranger abduction or a crime of opportunity, and I don't think it's the first time this person has done this. A thread on Reddit suggests that whomever took her would also have to live in an area that was like semi-soundproof, so they couldn't have lived in like an apartment complex or with their roommate, so that narrows down the suspect pool a little bit. While there have been a few suspects that police have actually investigated, none have been more than circumstantial. There have been over 9,000 leads in the Amber Hagerman case, and there was only a few that kind of piqued the interest of police. One being in 2015, they actually busted a couple, Sharon and Buddy Anderson, for creating a massive amount of child pornography and distributing it. And they did have a few victims, but none of them were murders. Another suspect at the time was Texas serial killer William Reese. Reese was convicted of murdering 12-year-old Laura Smyther, and she bears another striking resemblance to Amber Hangerman. Smyther was abducted in 1997 when she was leaving her home to go for a jog and meet a friend in Friendswood, Texas, right outside of Houston. Laura never returned and was reported missing, with her body being found several weeks later. Like Amber, she was found in a pool of water, nude except for one sock, throat cut, and dumped near a large freeway. 
The one sock is honestly probably just what happens when you dump a body. There was another famous case of a Jane Doe called Orange Socks that got identified a couple of years ago because she was only found with an orange sock. A couple of people have pointed out that William Reese isn't really a great suspect because Smyther looked really prepubescent and most of Reese's victims were adults. Now, victimology really doesn't mean shit, although we do hear that, like, you know, people have types. It is possible for killers to go outside of their traditional MO, especially when they're having a quote-unquote break. However, Reese has an alibi as that he was literally in jail the day that Amber Hagerman was kidnapped. Another very similar case was Opal Jennings, and she was six years old in 1999 when she was abducted from her front yard in her Fort Worth home. She was playing with her younger cousin and their friend. A man in a purple-ish, black-ish car drove up and abducted Opal. Her skeletal remains would be found five years later, and a gentleman by the name of Richard Franks would be turned in by his parole officer for her abduction and murder. Although he's maintained his innocence, he was actually convicted based on the fact that he changed his appearance right after Opal's abduction. He was a convicted sex offender and a convicted pedophile, and he had driven a car that matched the description. While there are a lot of people that question if Franks even took Opal, he's still convicted and serving time for the crime. In conclusion, it's been 24 years since Amber Hagerman was taken from that Winn-Dixie parking lot in broad daylight. We still have no idea who took her, where he took her, what exactly he did to her, or where the rest of her clothing and belongings are. Those kinds of questions are the ones that keep me up. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you had a wonderful day listening to horrible things. I hope you go do something nice for yourself. Be kind, rewind, and don't let the bastards get you down. But we re actually really have to do sources. I got a lot of information from Reddit, um, specifically um, the subreddit Unresolved Mysteries, um, and a really good write-up by Sub Simulator GPT-2. I also got my information from the medium.com, um, the Wikipedia page, <laughs> of course, um, the New York Times article from 1996 from newspapers.com and the blog The True Crime Times. If you're still here, check me out on Instagram at crimechatpod. I also have a Twitter that I don't use that I probably should use. And let me know your thoughts, theories, and uh, shit about the Amber Hagerman case or any case for that matter. I will literally talk about anything crime related. Also, if you feel like getting spicy, I am learning that it helps to rate and review the podcast. So if you guys feel so inclined to do that, that would be totally awesome because apparently that's how people find me when they search for podcast subjects. The more you know. Now I know why all those podcasts at like the beginning of every single episode are like, please rate, review and subscribe. Like, bitch, I know, but eh, okay, that makes sense. So please rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs>